Welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast where we discuss Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts for today, Kathy and Karen. Today we will discuss episode 13 of the Tang Dynasty drama, The Longest Day in Chang'an, or in Mandarin, Chang'an Shen. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter, or else email us at Kathy at ChasingDramas.com. As always, this podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin. We'll start with an episode recap, weave in some book differences, and then move on to history. At the beginning of episode 13, Xu Bin has been arrested and sent to the prison at Jing'anzi. He's stuck with Chen Sen, someone I totally forgot about. Hi, dude. He is so funny. Like, it's not actually that bad in here. There's just no food. Like, you can, you know, hide away from Chulo Huodu or whatever bad thing that's going to happen outside. I am pretty sure everyone in Jing'anzi completely forgot about this guy. Xu Bin is yelling about wanting to be let go, and when Chen Sen gets a closer look at some of the ink droplets on Xu Bin's outfit, he is hit with sudden inspiration that he knows what Chue Le Huo Duo, or the blaze, is going to be. The two of them both start yelling their heads off for someone, and I burst out laughing that Chen Sen is, again, yelling about food still, while Xu Bin is like, I know what's going to happen to Chang'an today. <laughs> but I think this is also something that we don't really emphasize in the drama until maybe later on, but Chen Sen actually is quite intelligent and has these, like, aha moments that really move the plot along. In the book, this isn't really the case. Xu Bin comes to the conclusion of the discovery on his own. The time now is a little after 4 p.m. in the afternoon. It has been six hours since all of the events of the day started. At Jing'anzi, Tan Qi finally makes it back to report to Li Bi. He is actually a little annoyed it took her that long to come back and was intrigued why she would listen to Zhang Xiaojing's order for this little detour. She doesn't know why she listened to Zhang Xiaojing, but at least she shares what exactly he told her to do. This is even more confounding to Li Bi, who then orders Tan Qi to return back to Zhang Xiaojing because he doesn't think the person the Blaze Gang has kidnapped is Wen Zhan but probably some other person. Zhang Xiaojing wouldn't just leave the likes of Wen Zhan to some unknown person. However, this also complicates matters more because Li Bi now knows that Zhang Xiaojing has some odd relationship with the Prince of Yong. Let's turn then to the person the Blaze Gang actually did capture. In the last episode, we were introduced to an impoverished court official Yuan Zai, who is an official of the 8th rank at the Court of Judicature, or Da Li Si. He was called to help the Prince of Yong and the Blaze gang leader Feng Daluan. In a meeting with Yuan Zai, Feng Daluan explains to Yuan Zai that he just needs Yuan Zai to recall Zhang Xiaojing from the streets and stick him back in prison. That was all the information that Feng Dalun at first was willing to share, but Yuan Zai pressed for more information. 
And these scenes really show Yuan Zai's thoughtfulness, wiliness, and cunning. Any other person would have been like, "Fine, I'll do this because the Prince of Yong told me to." But Yuan Zai is like, "I would like to know more background here. Only that way can I accurately help you in this situation." As Feng Dalun states in the episode, Yuan Zai doesn't give up any opportunity to advance. But in my mind, it's not just that. Yuan Zai is exceedingly careful in how he takes his next steps because one wrong move could result in not only a demotion but possibly certain death. He's right now playing with the big wigs, including a prince. So he must choose every step very carefully. And that's pretty much what happened next. Yuan Zai asks Feng Dalun to take him to meet the supposed Wen Ran in order to use her as the opportunity to lure Zhang Xiaojing. But Yuan Zai takes one look at the kidnapped woman's attire, especially the hair accessory she has, and immediately turns away. He's exasperated at Feng Dalun for not even confirming the woman they kidnapped because that hair accessory can only be made. For someone of the aristocracy, if that is indeed who is kidnapped, then their careers are over. Honestly, what an idiot Feng Dalun is! Like, he just says, "Great, we caught a woman." Doesn't even bother to check who it is, and just says, "Yeah, it's one man." <laughs> well, that's why Yuan Zai will go far, and Feng Dalun, uh, not so much. I will say that yes, I have been quite critical of Yuan Zai already, especially in the last episode. But I must admit, after watching this episode a little more closely, that I do respect him somewhat for being a extremely observant and b being confident in his own abilities. He volunteers to figure out exactly who the kidnapped woman is, and the moment Wang Yunxiu is ungagged, she spouts all manner of horrible. And condescending things to Yuan Zai because of his eighth-rank official attire, he actually softly slaps her across the face and directly states that he worked extremely hard to get to where he is today. So he is not any less than her father. I'm like, okay, that's pretty impressive. But now he knows who she is, and he comes up with a plan to rescue her. Well. This plan isn't as simple as just rescuing her. Yuan Zai needs to help Feng Dalun come up with a scapegoat too, since Wang Yunxiu doesn't actually know anything about the Blaze Gang. She only knows the Wolf Squad and the fact that Zhang Xiaojing wrote up a map of the Right Chancellor's home to the Wolf Squad. At this point, we don't know exactly what Yuan Zai has up his sleeve right now, other than the fact that he actually has Wang Yunxiu tied up and gagged again and placed in a carriage to be carted off somewhere. While also sending a detailed document over to Jing and Si for Li Bi to read. In it, he details the fact that they were able to rescue Wang Yunxiu from the Wolf Squad members, but Zhang Xiaojing shared that detailed map of the Right Chancellor's home. At this exact moment, though, the drama cuts to the Right Chancellor's home, and he is getting the information basically in real time. To me, it is now glaringly obvious that someone is sharing secrets with him from Jing and Si. Interestingly, the Right Chancellor isn't actually too worried about a possible attack by two members of the Wolf Squad. 
He's more pleased to hear this information because it means that Zhang Xiaojing committed treason, and that is surely going to help him bring down the crown prince and Li Bi. So, what has Li Bi been getting up to for the past, you know, two hours? After Xu Bin screamed his head off about a new lead, he presents his information to Li Bi, saying that Zhang Xiaojing previously told him. All about this type of extremely destructive and violent type of black liquid that, when set on fire, would blaze for days on end. However, this type of liquid or oil is very rare. Not many people know of it. Furthermore, it can avoid detection and search as a flammable object because its alternate use is to actually make ink. That's why this entire day. They were not able to accurately identify whatever the Wolf Squad was trying to use as their destructive source. All of this is well and good, but even I picked up on it and was happy for Li Bi to focus on this piece of information too. Of hey, why does Xu Bin know all this information from Zhang Xiaojing? This here is the difference in the book where Xu Bin says that he didn't know Zhang Xiaojing. And used his da and du shu or database search skills to find Zhang Xiaojing. In the book, he says very clearly in the beginning that they know each other. In any case, Li Bi wants Xu Bin investigated now, since everything that happened today is too closely tied to Zhang Xiaojing and overly coincidental. As for Zhang Xiaojing, he is hot on the tails of the Wolf Squad members thanks to his trusted dog friend. And using his brains rather than listen to that hilarious beggar who tried to lead him elsewhere. At an abandoned residence, he is greeted by a bloodthirsty Yu Chang who promptly enters into a furious fight with him. But she is not really there to fight to the death. Well, actually, she wants to kill him, but it turns out that he is actually a better fighter than she is. As she states herself, she really just wants to try to waste some time to keep Zhang Xiaojing at bay. She does, however, connect the dots, though, that Zhang Xiaojing is looking for Wen Zhan via the unique fragrance that she has. Anyways, Yu Chang doesn't actually win and does get slashed across the cheek by Zhang Xiaojing, which tells you a lot about、uh, how adept he is in combat since he's been injured quite a bit today. Though, can we also? All appreciate Yu Chang's outfit. Like she is so Assassin's Creed vibe today, <laughs> and just looks amazing. I want her outfit actually for Halloween. After this happens, Zhang Xiaojing manages to use the hound to find where Wen Zhan truly is hiding. But inside the other abandoned property, Cao Poyan is waiting for Zhang Xiaojing. Another intense and brutal fight scene breaks out as Cao Poyan. Knows this is a suicidal event. Cao Poyan does not hold back, but Zhang Xiaojing still manages to subdue him in one of the most brutal and painful ways. Zhang Xiaojing stabs Cao Poyan straight through the abdomen with a or with his sword as the two men wrestle on the ground. Tweety and Lu Benjun actually arrive to help support Zhang Xiaojing. So I'm like, okay, fine, good job, Tweety. But he is a little overwhelmed at seeing Cao Poyan in the state that he is in because, of course, Cao Poyan killed Tweety's brother. 
Tweety is quite distraught at the whole scene and wants to further investigate what else might be hiding on the property. And he orders his men to search the property, despite Zhang Xiaojing warning otherwise. And ugh, I feel like Tweety this time was too eager, maybe mixed in with some of his ego, but he opens or his soldiers open the door and are met with a catastrophic blast. The trap that was set by Longbo was triggered and the entire property was set ablaze. That is where we end episode 13. So that was the episode recap. Let's move on to the history of this episode. Early on in the episode, right around the four minute mark, when Tan Qi and Li Bi are having their discussion, we get a view of this massive statue in the background. Pretty cool, right? I've never really paid attention to this statue before. Anyways, what's interesting is that it looks to be a mix of Buddhism and Taoism. Because on the lapel of the statue, there is a hexagram from Yi Jing, which is an ancient book of divination. The two circles on the lapel form the shape of the sixth hexagon, Song, which means arguing or conflict. It also means that there's blessing among misfortunes and misfortunes among blessings, which I think is an interesting take on this particular drama. We don't see the rest of the statue very well, but the ears of the statue are more reminiscent of a Buddha, hence why I say there's a mix of Buddhism and Taoism on this particular statue. Pretty cool, right? Shortly after, in the scene where Yuan Zai and Feng Dalun have their little meetup, the two are using two glass-looking goblets. These look pretty similar to glass goblets that were unearthed in the 1980s from the tomb of a 6th century general, Li Xian. The artifact originated from the Sassanian Empire, and the one found in the tomb was one of the first well-preserved pieces of glassware from that empire in China. I think the example that we see in the show really just highlights that there's a lot of wealth in Chang'an for a guy like Feng Dalun, who has his protectors and also is the lead of a gang. What's a little bit of glass from a faraway country or faraway empire? Nothing. So I'm just going to have this to uh, share with you, Yuanzai, to make sure you do my bidding. Just one more quick aside here. When Wang Yunxiu, the woman who is captured, talks about her father, she's like, my father is a Yunhui Jiangjun, or in the YouTube translation, a flag general. I personally like how Yunzai is like, uh, which one? Because there's 20 in Chang'an. Wang Yunxiu's reaction is so funny because she's like, my father is Wang Zhongsi. Yuan is like, oh, shoot. <laughs> the title of Yunhui Jiangjun, or the flag general, had been around for around two centuries by the time of this story. During the Tang Dynasty, if one had the title of Yunhui Jiangjun, he was at least a third rank general or higher. Wang Yunxiu's father had much higher ranks than that, but the third level was the base for a Yunhui Jiangjun. 
So that's why she is very disparaging to Yuan Zai because he is only of a lowly eighth rank. Next, the big reveal during today's episode is that Tenzin and Xu Bin finally figured out what the impending apocalypse was going to be. Shu Zhi, or essentially petrol, transformed into ink sticks or ink stones that become highly flammable. During the Tang Dynasty, petrol or oil was actually called shi zhi, which translates literally to fat from stone. The name changed to shi you or stone oil during the Song Dynasty 300 years later. The first references to oil were recorded back in the 1st century AD as water that could be burned. By the late 3rd century, there were records of thicker liquids from the ground that were not edible but could be burned. Oil during the Tang Dynasty was already being drilled or cultivated to light objects and funnily enough, used to grease carriage. There are records dating to the late 6th century AD of northern Zhou soldiers using oil as a mechanism for self-defense during a battle with the Turks. The soldiers essentially poured oil over the city walls to burn the invaders. The specific province noted in the drama where the oil and subsequently the ink stones originated from was the city of Yanzhou, which is current day central China. Thousands of years later, a huge oil conglomerate now calls its place home in that area. The name is Yanchang Youtian Shanxi Yanchang Petroleum. The Chinese did actually use oil to make ink stones and ink sticks, but that process wasn't invented until the 11th century by a gentleman named Shen Kuo. Here in the drama, Xu Bin says, oh, this is an established process already, but as I'll share now, that was not invented until three centuries later. Shen Kuo was an absolute genius, and basically creating this ink was only one of his many achievements. Another being the first to describe the magnetic needle compass. I think for him, he was like, I have all this time in the world, not really, but let me figure out how to make ink too. <laughs> Anyways, Shen Kuo was posted in Yanzhou for a while, and one day he realized that locals were using this interesting fluid that spouted from the ground to use as something to burn. The locals would scoop the oil using chicken tail feathers, and then they would collect the oil into jars. It was this guy Shen Kuo that renamed Shi Zhi to Shi You that we use today. Shen Kuo quickly realized that the soot from burning this oil was a prime substance into creating ink to write. It was better than most other types of ink in that it was very black and bright. This soot ink or this yenjo oil ink was better than the ink produced by pine trees that was the standard of the day. Funnily enough, Shen Kuo thought that oil was going to be a much better alternative to pine ink because pine ink or pine trees would one day be depleted, but oil would not be depleted. I get where his logic is coming from, but <laughs> I don't think he could have thought about cars, I would say, a thousand years ago. His recounting of this discovery can be found in his Dream Pool Essays, or Meng Xi Bi Tan, which was published in 1088 AD. 
I've seen some TikTok videos of how people still make traditional ink stones and ink pens, and the process is long and arduous. It can take years. So once again, good for this guy Shen Kuo to say, "Hmm, maybe I'll just take the soot and create something." Let's wrap up with discussing this amazingly beautiful but brutal explosion scene at the end of episode thirteen. We get about a one-minute-long shot of the explosion that the Wolf Squad members set off, or you could say the trap triggered. This scene actually took 15 whopping days to film. It was all practical effects, which is crazy, and took a lot of choreography to pull off. I'm sure there were actually some injuries from this scene, but it was insane because it. I mean, looking at this episode, it was really cool to see how、uh, the explosion really happened. And that is it for our podcast discussion of episode thirteen of the longest day in Chang'an. Let us know your thoughts. The music for this episode is Qing Pingyue, played by yours truly, with sheet music by Cui Jianghui. Friendly reminder that if you are looking for sites to watch Chinese dramas or movies, and you are in the U.S., please feel free to head on over to our sponsor Jubao TV. That is J U B A O T V. It is a free service that has a selection of Chinese dramas and movies to watch, all with English subtitles. They have launched on Sling TV, and you can also access it on Plex. Online, you can stream it on their website Jumo, or else on TV on Xfinity and Cox Contour. Once again, all of this is free. Thank you all so much for listening, and we will catch you all in the next podcast episode.